Welcome to AOL. Welcome to AOL Underground. I'm sure you've thought about the motive behind this, but just as an outsider listening to it, it's almost like, sure, you guys both miss the same ass mail, right? So you had you have something in common, right? And then you mentioned your program, you send it to him and stuff, and either one, he was jealous, or two, he just thought you were annoying, and he's like, I'm just going to fuck with this kid, right? And I'm guessing it was had to be one or the other. And then like on your big day, either that or he just, you know, he enjoyed making people suffer, right? And, and maybe he thought he was like some cool like hacker guy, right? So that virus is what, like the second virus for Macintosh too? So like they were pretty new, right? It was also an old virus at the time. Really? It came out, what, 90, 89, 90 or whatever the hell? It was not, it was not even, like, it's hard to explain. It's not like someone these days dropped uh, Imitet, Hanseter, Iced ID, Quackbot, whatever the fucking things I deal with every day, right? Onto a system and it was a remote access and info stealer and a Trojan and just, you know, led to ransomware attacks and all this shit, right? No. It was just some stupid, dumbass little thing. And it was just the fact that um, it was Symantec that first picked it up by the, the first user I saw that said, hey, here's what I, here's what this is. Be careful. It was a Symantec report. Or, no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. Um, they bought uh, Norton, Norton, Norton Utilities. So I forgot what year we were in. Uh, it was a Norton little thing. that was like, hey, MDEF dot C or dot D or whichever version it was. How did his stuff get in your program? I thought you were the programmer. Oh, I was, but I was not paying attention to the patch file all of a sudden having a, a, a new... So he, so he gave you a patch? When I was giving him stuff for beta testing, he basically just added the data into it. I have no idea how he added it into it. Uh, my assumption is that, I mean, the way that you would do that back in the Macintosh days, is you would literally open up two programs and res edit. You'd copy one of the MDEF resources, you'd do copy, and then drag it over to the other one, and fucking now it would be in that tool. That's, I mean, that's, that's the way you would do it. So... Everything that we discussed uh, pre-show, we didn't talk about motive at all. And, but everything you just said right now, is, you nailed it. That's exactly what my mom and I were, were mulling over. You know, was it that I was over-enthusiastic and I became annoying and I was asking for too much assistance? Was it literally a jealousy thing? Was I was my stuff that cool? Or, or like, what the hell was it? I'll never know to this day. Unless he's randomly listening here and sends me a message and say, hey, I'm the guy that fucked you over when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. Here's why. Like, I'll never, yeah, fuck you. That's why I did it. You know, I'll never know. I don't know. I have no idea. Because I can. Yeah, exactly. I guess I need to know more about the quote virus or whatever. Does it like replicate on its own or does somebody manually have, you're saying someone has to manually copy it over and put it in a program or does it infect stuff on its own? Like, how does it work? Because I mean, what, what if he didn't do it at all? What if his computer was just infected and he sent it back to you? Oh, he, so here's the thing about that. I, I also don't know if that's the case. After he sent the mass mail bomb out, right, he told me that he did it. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Because I came back online and I messaged him and I was like, dude, you would never believe what just happened. And he goes, oh, I know. And he told me and I'm like, what the fuck? And he actually, this is where it gets kind of weird, I guess. He gave me his phone number and he's like, call me. And this is where it go. I have so many fond memories and very specific things about this exact time frame in my life. I had a zip drive. I know what my folder structure of those fucking zip drives were like. I actually have six zip disks, which I haven't had a chance to review 
I'm going to shit myself if I find some cool old AOL stuff on there, by the way. But I knew, I remember all these things. I don't remember his name, his voice, where he lived, any of this crap. He gave me a phone number and it was somewhere in the Midwest. I remember that. And I called him. And when I called him, he told me, he's like, yeah, I sent that mail out. Did it suck for you or something like that? And then he hung up. I tried to call back. I tried to call that motherfucker like five times a day for a month. <laughs> I never got through back to him. Um, it was just always ring. I don't know what that was about, but uh, I'll never know. I, I, I never know. But what I left, the, when I left the scene, right, that those experiences stuck with me and eventually molded who I am now. My job, my career is my hobby. My hobby is my career. My personal life, I don't have a fucking personal life. I work in cybersecurity. Like I, before this podcast, I was on a call for work. And after this podcast, I have projects that will probably take me to, to 1 a.m. in the morning to work on outside of my day job because I do too many fucking things in cybersecurity, right? Like I live and breathe this shit. And where did it all really begin? Well, I learned how to use computers from my dad and I didn't see my dad a lot. And when I did, I wanted to impress him. That sounds a little sad, but I mean, that's how fucking divorced families work, right? You see the other parent, you're like, hey, fucking, I'm cool. Look at me, right? And I, I wanted to learn all I could about computers and I loved them. And he loved them too. And that, that was motivating. And then I met Gary and he showed me all this cool shit. And I was just like, fucking, whoa, I'm like mind blown, dude. You know, the, my guide to the cyber universe, fucking cool. And then I lost Gary because we had to move away. And I, um, God, I just remember when you said, when I went into uh, fucking counseling, if my mom was like, was it Gary? <laughs> I can't believe she never asked. I'm, I'm going to call her as soon as we're done here and be like, oh my God, you got to hear this. Um, I move away and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, let me just, you know, do this more online stuff more myself. And then I find, oh, this is all the shit he was talking about. This is the where's scene. And I'm like, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm on a Mac. Like, how do I find the fuck? And then I find it. And then I go down that route, you know, for uh, the next year or two as I move into, I guess, seventh grade at the time. So then, uh, yeah, 13, maybe, maybe 14. I think maybe the early 14. And I go down this path. I build this tool and I just get reamed and I lose all sense of hope. What did I really learn in all of this? I, there's two major things that those experiences, my experiences on AOL, really pushed into my brain. One of them was about trust and who you can or cannot trust and giving trust too early. And for that matter, understanding that just because you think you understand someone, there are some fucking shitty people in this world. And those shitty ass people will hurt people. And it's not just, I mean, don't get me wrong. I grew up in a, in a, in a rough town right? Um, you know, fights were common. We had a lot of gang, a lot of fucking gang violence. There were a migrant worker faction and their crew and our crews, we'd fight out. Like it was, it, and I wasn't in a gang, but I mean like on the North and South side of, of my town where I live, North and East, there was constant, um, stabbings and, and shootings and, and killings and murders and fucking gangland shit. At one point we had a, a murder rate that was almost on par with Detroit and we were a little fucking farming town, you know, like it was, it was a fucked up town, but that's not where I learned how people were fucked up. <laughs> I learned that people could be fucked up when my little heart got broken <laughs> on AOL. That's where I learned it. So I learned that. And I also learned that, holy shit, viruses and malware can be so detrimental to your computing life. 
Now keep in mind, I'm just some dumbass little, at the time, 11 to 13, maybe 14 year old kid, right? That's it. And this virus, did it really cause, no, it, by the way, it can self-replicate. I don't know if I finished answering that question. I apologize. Um, it's just some dumbass little resource thing. It didn't even cause that big of a fucking problem. And um, it, it could be weaponized technically to, to do some other fun stuff. There was another virus around that time. I mean, if you look up classic Mac viruses, you'll see there were literally a handful um, that were well known. So I've always, in the back of my mind, no matter what I did after this shit, no matter what I did in the back of my mind, it was, I'm in, I, I was in the scene and I'm still in, in hotline MIRC, right? Um, realm. And I was using MIRC, but you know, we were in the, the IRC realm and, uh, well, first off, that's bullshit. No, I wasn't. I was on a Mac. I don't remember what the hell I was using off the top of my head, which is really weird, but I was mostly on Hotline. So anyway, oh, I was using soft windows to, uh, from Connectix, also from the webcam folks, uh, to run Windows. And then I was using MIRC inside of that. So I, I used to emulate Windows on my Mac back in the day before like it was common to, for emulation and virtualization, right, is what I meant to say, uh, was common. Today, Like you know, I, I'm running four VMs right now two Linux, a Unix, and fucking Windows, right? That's, a, that's what we do. But back then, I was like, this is cool, I'm running Windows. Anywho, pulling back, I was going forward, whatever I did, it was very hard to trust, and it was very hard to disassociate that the hacker mentality, the scene mentality, with the concept of a hacker that the media portrays. Like, what's a hacker? Well, like, a hacker's a piece of shit, right? I mean, I work, I literally work to stop hackers every day. That's what I do. I don't stop hackers. I stop threat actors, right? That's what I do. A hacker, we're all hackers, shit. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we get to, well, what's a hacker mean? Point being is, we were doing shit. We were stealing music. And, you know, throughout junior high and high school, I made a ton of money. We didn't have a lot of money. We were on government assistance and shit like that but I had a lot of fucking cash. And the reason I did is because I sold music CDs when I got my first CDR. I was installing mod chips and PlayStation 1s. I was the only guy in the school for a while that could even solder. I was selling VCDs and I was selling VCD attachment players for PlayStation 1. I used to get them from licksang.com for many of you other, other folks. By the way, another big passion in my life is retro gaming. You can actually see right now, that this is audio only, but you can see all my gaming consoles behind me and shit on the walls. I've got Super Metroid painted on my wall, right? My dad taught me video game shit too. It was video games, computers. So that kind of shows you where I, I grabbed onto those, right? Over time, I was doing more, I was getting into cracking, the cracking scene. And I was really, really getting into like, you know, fuck res edit. Like, let's learn about max bug. Let's learn about a proper fucking debugger and a kernel level debugger at that. And in the Windows realm, I started learning about soft ice. You could just hold down control and press D and drop into the debugger and fucking manipulate whatever you wanted. And I was, you know, following tutorials online and shit like that, but I was learning how to crack. And I was, you know, wares was a huge thing. And I would sell shit, but we're, we're well past seven years for anyone listening. <laughs> like, wait a minute, arrest this man. Uh, no one cares anymore. I was selling like dragon naturally speaking. I was selling it to doctors because I was dating this girl whose father was a doctor. And one day he mentioned, I wish I had a tool to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I, I can give you that. And then um, he's like, oh, how much? And I'm like, how much? I'll just give it to you. But instead, what I said was 400 bucks because it was like a thousand at the time or some stupid shit. And then I sold it to like every doctor he knew. And I made a ton of fucking money in wow. high school. But we're on government Section 8 housing, if anyone's familiar with Section 8, right? And yet I'm fucking like, I have big ass subwoofers in my car. <laughs> like, where'd those come from? Well, they came from stealing shit online, but it was online. I didn't think it was a problem, right? Like who gives a shit that I'm stealing music online, you know? So 
over time, as I, as I get out of high school, I start to then realize that some of the things I'm looking at in the cracking scene have now evolved to me being interested in exploitation and software exploits. And I was starting to think about getting into exploit writing. I thought that I was going to be what we call these days a penetration tester or a, a red team, well, a pen tester, right? Breaking into software and systems and, and whatever uh, in order to, to help companies identify like, hey, there's a weakness to fucking go fix it, right? I thought that the more I started getting into those scene, that particular part of the scene, the more I realized these aren't the kind of people that I actually want to hang around with. Because a lot of these, and keep in mind, it was not like we have now, where we have a red team open environment and people are like, yeah, I, I, I hack shit, I break shit, and then I report to the clients or companies, I get bug report money, or I work as a pen tester for my organization. That shit didn't exist at that time. This was rather people who were fucking people over. And they were, I was learning more how to exploit software as opposed to just, you know, manipulate in a, a debugger, like bypass, you know, a serial number being entered or some stupid shit like that. And as I started feel, thinking more and more and more, I was like, you know what? Some of these people fucking suck. And some of these people remind me of numbnuts from AOL. <laughs> I'm going to call them numbnuts now from AOL. And I had always fucking hated malware. And as, as it became more, by the way, from a vi the term virus to malware, and as we started to get the worm shit in the early 2000s that decimated Windows environments and, you know, blaster worm and all this type of shit, I started thinking more and more like, fuck me, dude. Numbnuts from back in my day, that's this dude grown up. That's this dude now. That's what this dude's doing. He's taking down companies and royally fucking them over. So you fast forward. I was a technical trainer in a call center environment for six, almost seven years. During that time, I was going to school for cybersecurity. Why was I going to school for cybersecurity? Well, at this point, you probably know, like no shit, because I wanted to, I didn't want people to have to deal with this shit. Like it fucking sucked for me, man. And eventually I get a job in a security operations center, which was about 10 and a half years ago now. And it happened, it just happened to be, I got really lucky. One of the largest companies in the world a government contractor. We built nuclear facilities, actually quite a bit of nuclear facilities. Like you name it, big fucking massive multi tens of billions of dollar project. That's what my former company built. I won't say their name, but if you just fucking go to LinkedIn, you'd be like, oh, there it is. <laughs> like, Duh, it's right there. All right. Most people have not heard of the company that I worked for, but if you've heard of Halliburton, same fucking concept. Um, so working at that company from day one, I dealt with real threat actors, not some numb nuts from AOL, but really fucked up people. And it was immediate was holy shit. This is what I'm, I am destined to do. And what led me to that? My time on AOL, my time learning how to develop and pro, you know, script, right? Whatever, but develop and program, make my own thing, be happy and proud of my baby. And then have that completely shit on by someone that I trusted, not just someone that I trusted, but someone just in general is part of the scene, right? So I spent time in that security operations center and computer incident response team for uh, like a month shy of seven years. And then about three years ago, actually in a week from today, it'll be three years, I moved over to consulting. I currently work for BlackBerry. And yes, if, you, if anyone listening just did a double take and said BlackBerry, you mean like that BlackBerry? Yeah, <laughs> that one. So I work for BlackBerry. I worked for a company called Silence. I was hired on by Silence. And by the way, they were, um, we were purchased by BlackBerry, like right when I got hired by Silence. So I didn't, 
I didn't specifically get hired onto BlackBerry. I was looking for an antivirus company that had professional services to stop hackers. And I found Silence and it was, you know, uh, artificial intelligence fueled products. And then we also did professional services that led to me working at BlackBerry. For the past three years now, I work IR. And when I say IR, the number one thing that I deal with these days is ransomware. And the number one thing that you could just absolutely fucking destroy a company's hopes and dreams these days is ransomware, right? Um, we work advanced threat, uh, excuse me, advanced persistent threat cases. So China, or excuse me, um, certain countries that may be active and, uh, <laughs> and aggressive and attacking other countries. I almost said one of their names. I think we all know who the top two are. Um, there's, there's really a top three and the rest are all still shitty too. So I've worked those cases. I've worked some high level, high, high level espionage shit, especially at my last job. When you say espionage, what does espionage entail? Hmm. Oh, yeah. I, sorry, I, I do so many presentations in the cyber realm. I forget that this is uh, not specifically a cyber audience. So um, the term advanced persistent threat or APT, it refers to or is supposed to, and the media screws it up, but it's supposed to refer to nation state sponsored attack groups. And like, well, let's not bullshit, right? It's China, Russia and Iran. Those are the three big, big ones, very big ones. They're really fucking good at breaking into environments and targeting organizations and other not in countries that are non-friendly with them. The United States being like the, you know, number one in that regard. And these organizations are typically, they're government funded. Um, the PLA in China, for example, that's the major branch of their army. They have uh, multiple organizations and groups that uh, form their, their military, right? The, the PLA people's Republic fucking libertarian, whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> I just blanked on PLA. And, uh, and then Russian has the, the GRU stuff. It's all there. It's all there. You know, we have the three letters. They have their own three letters. NSA, FBI, CIA, all that type of shit. Um, the attacks that they carry out are to better their environment and their place in the world. And they carry out cyber warfare, basically. And so some of the stuff I deal with is that shit. And so for the most part, for the most part, these days I deal with ransomware. Like I just finished writing a four-day ransomware course that's specific on incident response, how to deal, and I, like for large, for large groups, right? Like you know, companies like who I work for, you know, all the way down to a dentist office or a mom and pop shop. It's like shit. We got ransomware. What do we do? You know, that for the IT side, that is. So we got ransomware. Is that like, okay, I see a ransomware message, or is it like my EDR just popped for Emotet on a domain controller? but I'm not encrypted yet. Is it all of that or? Yeah, all the above. Yeah, the course that I wrote, it's for anyone who might be familiar, it's for a, a company called the Sands Institute. It's a technical training organization where you go and you pay a bunch of money for like four to six day courses. So this is a, a course that's designed for incident responders or for people who are working in IT and may may someday have to deal with ransomware. It's, we, I mean, in the course and what we do at, at my day job, right, as we call um dollar sign day job, like a variable in programming, right? I'm a day job is we deal with teaching people how to hunt for ransomware operators who may already be in your environment. So if you're not yet encrypted, but you already have been penetrated and you're like, oh shit, right? If you're being encrypted, like right fucking now, like literally encryption events are running, which by the way, you're way too late to the party at that point, you're already so fucked. Or whether you just were encrypted, like all the above are things that we deal with in this course. So, and that's what we do on a daily basis, right? In my job. And so, the nation state sponsored stuff, 
an example for anyone who wants to learn about that type of thing, just because it, it's so fucking interesting, is just look up APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, and the number one space report. You'll find a report that was published back in 2012 from a company called Mandiant. Mandiant's now known as FireEye, by the way. Um, if you l read this report, you can grab the report. It's like 70 pages, and it is a dossier on how one of the uh, PLA groups, so basically the Chinese military, right, how they had a group of hundreds of, uh, they're all men, hundreds of men who sat there and hacked against uh, other nations, primarily the United States, nine to five every day for years at a time. So my first case I ever worked was an APT1 case. And it like, I thought I was going to be dealing with, you know, like online fraud shit, you know, 13 year olds who get screwed over, <laughs> like start slow. Nope. Right into the fire. So if anyone is like, what the hell do these cyber defense, cyber crime and instant response folks really have to deal with? Read that APT1 report. It'll blow your fucking mind. And it is 10 years old at this point. But I'm telling you, you'll be like, this shit's real? <laughs> like, this isn't just TV? Fuck no. This is 10 years old. The amount of shit we've dealt with since then is way beyond this kind of crap. But it's like just reading, you'll see names and pictures and buildings and locations and generals and their trainers and the um, fucking the names of strings that were identified in their malware that were used to piece them together and weave the, uh, you know, basically draw the draw out the picture of the attack and go like, oh shit, this is actually associated with this telecom that is in Shanghai that use it like it's, it'll, it's, I'm telling you, it'll blow your fucking mind. I love that report. It's what really told me, holy shit, I'm really am in the right place. Anyway, the espionage stuff, if you, for example, China has uh, what's known as a five-year plan. And if you look up China five-year plan, you'll find a Wikipedia article called five-year plans of China. And it's really, really simple concept. Every five years, the government of China puts out new mandates and basically states over the next five years, we're going to do the following things in order to strengthen and bolster our position in the world. That, I mean, that's what this is. That's what these reports are, these uh, plans. These plans, and by, this is China we're talking about, by the way. These plans are not like, hey, we want to do this stuff. Right? These plans are like, this is what we're fucking doing and get it done. And the get it done is like all the large you know, organizations throughout all of China. Like this is essentially, it's not a mandate, but it's a fucking mandate. So if you look at a lot of stuff they want to do, they try to increase the number of rail system um, that they have, the uh, number of feet of rail. They try to increase the economy uh, financially by X percent or whatever. In order to achieve a lot of these things, they basically use cyber espionage. And that's why we hear so often that China and Russia, China and Russia, they're all hackers. You know, well, why is that? It's because their government's not openly per se, but like at this point, everyone knows no shit that their governments are like, yeah, we'll just do it that way. <laughs> right. Like, you know, well, it's going to be hard to, you know, get all this shit done. But there's these, you know, governments in London and, and Australia and the U.S., whatever. They've got these crazy liquid natural gas projects. Let's do some of that shit. You know, how do we do it? I don't know. Go steal their shit. <laughs> they just go steal their shit. That's basically what, you know, we're a lot of our cybersecurity folks are dealing with. That is that. That's how they do it. That's what they, that's how they plan this shit out. And they go and do it. So that's what's training. Yes. So I was wondering, like, why is China keep stealing intellectual property? And it's, it's, so it's because of these five-year plans. Okay. That, that. That all makes sense now. Yeah. For China, a big part of it is the five-year plans. This is all shit that I learned, like, the first month 
that I moved into what I call hands-on security, but moving into a security operations center where we're getting malware alerts, you know, like you mentioned, EDR or whatever, antivirus, whatever logs you have, firewall, all the shit that's coming in and saying like, hey, fucking, there's a problem, or like, hey, what's that? You know, that kind of thing. The more that we look into why is why is hacking into let's just focus on the united states for right now actually no fuck that let's go the united states and london and for that matter canada because those are the top three especially like targets for ransomware um ransomware is financial motivation that's e-crime it's still e-crime but let's pull back from that and talk about the espionage their big thing is we want to be a world power first off they are a world power we want to maintain and or be a, a bigger world power right how do we do that? Well, one way is to provide the opportunities to organizations throughout, you know, construction has to complete X number of domestic unit to house X number of the population to increase. So we have fewer homeless, like all these, all these types of things that decide where your stature as a country, right? In China, many of them are defined in their five-year plans. And the thing is, is that there's methods that you use to go about increasing those things, right? And one of the methods that China, Russia, and Iran are very well known to use is cyber espionage. They're like, well, we need, you know, we need to be a world power. And if these other countries have amazing, cool shit, especially stuff we don't have, let's just go take it. Like, well, then we'll just start doing some of that too. And then we'll be even better. That's basically all it is. I know it sounds silly the way I'm saying it, but that's what it is, you know? In fact, if you do China five-year plan and then click images, I believe. Well, the very first one that I see is from globaltimes.cn. And it says major targets of China's 14th five-year plan, which is from 21 to 25. So three more years on that guy, right? Number one, keep major economic indicators within an appropriate range. Okay. Don't lose a lot of money and keep fiscally um, saturated. Like, all right. Number two, above 7% annual growth in research and development spending. So let's break that down. <laughs> we want to above 7% growth in research and development spending. What's that really fueling? Research and development, R&D, right? What the hell is R&D? Well, that's what we're just talking about, right? How, how do you really increase research and development in all sectors or verticals or whatever you want to call them? Is It's the intellectual property. And where can you get intellectual property? Well, you have to grow it. No shit. No, you don't. You can just go steal it too. <laughs> I can just go steal that shit. So let's just train a bunch of people to be hackers, have them work a nine to five job that literally hacking into organizations around the world and steal their shit. So as you read through some of these five-year plans and you start to think, how could breaking into other countries' businesses and stealing their intellectual property, I'm saying stealing, they're not taking it and not, I mean, they're, they're just... They're stealing the confidentiality. They're screwing with the confidentiality of it. Yeah, exactly. Just copy your shit. No big deal, bro. <laughs> just let me copy off your paper. It's just a copy. Mm hmm. <laughs> if somebody wants something really good to read, check out Operation Aurora when China China got into Google. Um, and that, that was like a, like a year after, a year or two after the Mandate Report, but uh, that was pretty interesting. Yes. So, Operation Aurora, the threat actor who carried out Operation Aurora. I was involved in an incident with the, the exact crew and it was maybe a year after Operation Aurora and uh, it, different groups have different names, different companies in the United States mostly 
have different names for threat actors. They might like uh, Mandiant, they, they now just call them APT and a number. So you'll see APT1, APT3, APT37, 38 and 39, or Iranian. They call them the kitty groups, by the way. Um, Panda will be the Chinese-based groups and, and shit like that. So what was my point? Uh, oh, my point was these, at these attacks have absolutely not stopped. And the Aurora one specifically, I, I got to, I'm going to say I got to, because to me it was like living a movie. You know, I got to work a case with these folks. And this kind of stuff, that APT-1 and the Aurora operations, when you read re full reports like that APT-1 report, like that's the shit that, you know, that really got me motivated. Like you take that dickhead on AOL, you evolve, you know, Ryan, who I am over the years, and I'm like, fuck that guy. Like his whole purpose is just to fuck people over and destroy them. And that's what these threat actors do. And that's why I am who I am. You know, do I sell movies and, and shit like that anymore to make a profit myself no i fucking i hopefully have a career that i don't need to sell a fucking five dollar movie online you know that guy i fucking got from a torrent right but at the same time it's like you look at these exploit writers who are on these darknet forums i'm not in there talking with them about oh look, i found a, another stack overflow and a rock chain gadget to fuck over a vmware product let's use it to bring down companies and install ransomware fuck that rather i'm like hey some asshole is exploiting known vulnerabilities in vmware horizon you know, let's go fucking help people who have that system and are about to be hit or have just been hit. Like, fuck that AOL guy. <laughs> fuck, fuck the AOL guy, basically. So, yeah, the whole, you know, without diverging too much, the whole concept of, of being on the cast, and, and by the way, thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun talking with you here. Is It's an, an origin story of how much AOL meant to me and what it did for me as a person. And some folks may listen and be like, oh, he's not talking about, you know, crazy, cool, proggy shit that I remember. Like, no, I'm not. I'm talking about my experiences and how it made me who I am. We're all a community. We're a community, whether we recognize it or not. You obviously fucking recognize it because you have a whole podcast around it, right? That's why we're here. Duh. You know, I listened to every damn one of your episodes, maybe twice each. And I was just enthralled by every fucking one of them. I didn't know some of the, the names, but I didn't give a shit. I was like, it's fucking awesome being able to peek behind that curtain, right? Some people originally are like, Ryan, Surf Kahuna, Mac Diablo. No, no one remembers that guy. No, you don't. That's the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> you absolutely don't. Why? Because I thought you were going to know me, at least in the Mac scene, and then shit didn't work out. And that that led to me dealing with, you know, attacks to bolster, to, to facilitate meeting China's five-year plans and, you know, working to stop ransomware attacks. You know, that's, it, it all started there. It really did. And as a community, we, we've lost sight of our community for the most part, right? AOLers. But now we really haven't. We're, we're reinvigorating it. You're reinvigorating it. Shit, your podcast is fucking awesome. On top of that, we've got the re-AOL project. Like, are you shit? Are you kidding me? Like, what the hell? You and I were, we talked in there, I believe the first time, right? On their Discord server. I was yeah. like, hey, and we started, you know, chatting. Like, it, we're bringing together folks who have these shared experiences. Now, I really hope people didn't have a shitty experience <laughs> as I did in the scene. And I, it may seem like I'm saying my time there was negative overall. Fuck no, it wasn't negative. I learned to script, or if you want to call it program, I eventually you know, learned how to use Code Warrior and write C-based programs for the Mac. I, I learned to, I started tuning and fine tuning my IT skill sets, which led to a career that I have now that I fucking love. I am obsessed with what I do. 
uh, too obsessed if you ask my wife and family, but <laughs> like it, there was a lot of good, a lot of good, but there was also that those big moments and they were very impactful to me in my life. And it's all from the AOL scene. The more that we come together as a community, the more that we have more of your damn episodes in this podcast, like, keep them coming, damn it. The more that we have communications going on with re-AOL, the more I can log on to AOL and hear, welcome again. And be like, oh shit, you know, the more that we can just get get back to that community feeling, or at least maybe establish a kind of a new age one, you know, but with the, with that common thread. And that's that means a lot to a lot of us. And so, uh, yeah, that's my spiel. Yeah. <laughs> It definitely does. And, and hopefully there's a little more trust. But you have to wonder, like, if what happened to you happened today, right? Would it have been like, would you have gotten swatted, right? <laughs> or something like that? Uh, you know, because that, that, that dude seems maniacal enough, right? That he, oh, he, he 100%. Went, I was yeah. just watching a, one of the speedrunner. I love, like I said, retro gaming, right? I, I watch a lot of fucking speedruns. Oh, my God. So if anyone is familiar with speedrunning a video game, or, or usually it's a, well, not usually, but there's there's classic games that take the bulk of it, but there's new rage games. People try to get through as fast as possible. You know, if you're, are you familiar with awesome games done quick? No, I am familiar with speed running though. I've seen the super Mario's and then like the length breath of the wild one and all that. Yeah. 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 Okay. I love all that. The, the tech they come up with, by the way. Oh, Oh, don't even get me started. There's one group that run a, a, a project called TASBOT. T-A-S stands for tool assisted speed running. And uh TASBOT is a, piece of hardware basically that's been designed to relay inputs into classic consoles of yesteryear and they're able to essentially speed run at the height like the fastest rate possible that wouldn't even be close to humanly possible well taskbot is also able to manipulate and to exploit the software running on older consoles and take over the console and obtain remote code execution. So you can literally have, anyways, I'm getting carried away with the, the TaskBot thing, but just check it out. Check it out. TaskBot plays or whatever and games done quick. If anyone's into like retro gaming and into like how, you know, finding the kind of stuff that I do and dealing with people who are exploiting systems and breaking shit and being, being bad peoples, right? How, what's that look like when you're doing it for fun, but on a Super Nintendo or Nintendo 64 and all of a sudden you've got, you know, an R-wing flying around in uh, Ocarina of Time or all of a sudden you have Ocarina of Time running on a standard N64 system, a non-modified N64 and all of a sudden you've got a new cutscene that pops up because they remotely injected code into the system by just pressing controller buttons and sending that input into the system and you have Twitch chat live displayed on Nintendo 64 during a speed run. That kind of shit is like next fucking level, right? And even a lot of that, I believe, a lot of the old AOL, AOLers, as we call ourselves, right, can, can relate to a lot of those things. And uh, it's just the communities I find myself in, whether it's retro gaming or whether it's in, you know, the InfoSec security, cybersecurity, there's so many people who are like, oh, yeah, I started on AOL. And or for that matter, like in the AOL scene, like, oh, yeah, I was on AOL. I had, you know, this tool and this prog and I was sending, you know, mail bombs. I was being a dick. I was sending them mail bombs and this and that, you know. I, uh, I never mail bombed anyone. I was such a good boy. And I'm like, fucking, I was treated like I was the one who, I guess technically I did write a mail bomber. <laughs> Wait a minute. See, look at that. I'm a hypocritical piece of shit because I did write a mail bomber. I mean, it never actually got released because it was, it had a virus. <laughs> so, but I just realized that that's, that's, that's kind of silly. Yeah. I definitely had a, I had a slick ass mail bomber that I was, uh, providing, huh? It does some shit. Hmm. Now I have to dwell on my, 
Well, all that. Yeah, but that was totally normal back then. I mean, that's what everybody did. So. Oh, man. You remember that movie from the 80s? It's called Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L. Anyway, he was a kid who was like really like a robot. And uh, he ends up playing like F1 pole position and playing it at speeds that were like humanly impossible. So when you, you mentioned the speedrun stuff, it reminded me of that. Oh, I got to check that out. It's super good. I, I watched it again recently, and it was just as good as I remember it. Oh my goodness, this is, I never heard this. I'm looking at it right now. I will be doing this this after I call my mom <laughs> when we're done recording and be like, hey, remember that counseling stuff? Oh gosh, I can't wait. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I think a, a lot of people, um, it'll really resonate with them. So um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to turn it. No offense, because it sounded pretty pretty awful. <laughs> um, but it, at least that you got something out of it, right? You came out the other side and you, you learned a valuable lesson, but now you get to help people and defend America, which is something that's really amazing. A lot of people probably wish you know, they could be doing too. Um, so I'll just put the link in the show notes uh, to you know some of your courses and stuff. And I, I think that also a lot of people in cybersecurity will say this podcast too. So hopefully you know, it'll help get more people in InfoSec uh, connected to the podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I'm also in InfoSec, so that'd be awesome. Oh, by the way, I didn't I didn't mention this, but um, that the, you know the, I wrote the ransomware course for a group called Sans. I for two years previously before starting the course development, I taught Forensics 610 for Sans, which is called Reverse Engineering Malware. <laughs> I also made it my life mission to know fucking everything about malware. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, I, I never, I never got over the viruses and the, and the malware thing. And so again, part of that, the positivity is, is I learned that, well, I pushed myself to learn more and more and more about it. I will never, ever, ever, ever be the guy who, well, I'll go to virus and I got to malware. I don't know what's going on or whether it's my organization or my client's organizations. Right. So, you know, just, just another example of, you know, I, I taught a class and this is outside of work hours, right. Uh, in addition to my general work hours and just wanting to be the person who's not ever dumbfounded by a virus or, or malware ever again. So yeah, I definitely love that relation between, you know, InfoSec, as we call it, cybersecurity, whatever you want to call it, and uh, and the AOL scene. I, I would love to hear other stories at some point on your cast or just for folks who hear this and like, dude, check it out. Here's here's my origin story, whether you're even in IT or not, you know, be like well, my in the scene, this happened and that happened, and now I do this. Like I'd love to hear all that kind of crap. It'd be really cool. What do you think of the Strengthening America Cybersecurity Act of 2022 that was passed in March that requires reporting of ransomware incidents within 24 hours for critical infrastructure? Is that far enough? Honestly, I don't believe that it's far enough, but I don't know how much government oversight I'm really, really in love with in terms of forcing someone's hand and divulging what may or may not have happened. However, when it comes down to ransomware, let alone general threats throughout the world that we deal with, right? Whether it's an incident response or just at your company, right? Whoever you are listening, company X, Y, or Z, many of them go unreported. And the, the fewer that are reported, right? The less we report, the royal we, the more that these things are going to continue to be successful. We have to keep our eyes on the prize. We have to understand techniques, tactics, and procedures, what we call TTPs. In other words, how a threat actor or a group of threat actors does what they are going to do, 
right? What do they implement? What tools do they use? What methods do they uh, do X, Y, or Z with? If we don't know about those things, we can run into the problem where we're blind to them. So the more that we learn about them, the better. Critical infrastructure is, well, I mean, it's just that, right? It's critical infrastructure. In that regard, I, I do stand by it. I do believe that any critical infrastructure really needs to report when they've suffered a ransomware attack, for that matter, really, an incident. Then again, there comes a delineation of what, what is an incident, right? My answer versus someone else's answer versus the answer you'd put on a Security Plus certification exam. <laughs> they, may, they may differ uh, wildly. But I think that any type of critical infrastructure that we all depend on, we have to have a modicum of oversight and overview. And if we don't, and we allow these things to fall victim to attacks, uh, you know, one of the big things that we always worry about, especially with ransomware attacks, are some people call them upstream and some people call them downstream attacks. So in other words, if I break into an organization, right, I do my little fiddling and diddling, which is, I'm going to start using that term now, fiddling and diddling. Through their data, I exfiltrate a bunch of fun stuff. I learn some things. I take some screenshots, whatever. I eventually deploy my payload encryptor, right? The ransomware malware itself. Well, what did I just learn about that organization's partners and vendors, suppliers, and you know, organization, their competitors for that matter? They may have competitive intelligence, which most organizations do. If I utilize that in a negative or a, in a bad way, then it can cause many, many problems down the line. For critical infrastructure folks, especially if they're not reporting, hey, we dealt with this. When they were here, they did the following. And they don't, they did the following, the details on that, that doesn't necessarily need to be public. There, there has to be a line in the sand. You don't want to say this host, exact name, these user accounts, their exact name, they're, um, they're used for these purposes, right? They had these passwords, for example, to the public. But the more that you can redact the information while still explaining it, awesome. When it comes to other critical infrastructure in that realm, you know, whatever that be, sharing with them as much as you possibly can is very, very important. Unfortunately, we run into the situation where much of our critical infrastructure is in competition with itself, essentially. And so you run into the situation where they don't necessarily want to tell one another, oh, well, you know, we do things this way and that caused a problem because simply saying we do things this way, you know, however detailed that might be, could lead to additional competition, which is really, you know, not our concern from the InfoSec community, but I can totally see how that could be an issue. So overall, critical infrastructure also needs to be defined, um, and it is in that law, by the way, but neatly defined so that you don't have maybe a provider who's a really small mom and pop type of shop who maybe backfeeds some data into the electricity grid or something, or even just like a large um, solar farm or something like that. And all of a sudden they're being considered a, a critical infrastructure provider or something like that. You're like, well, wait a minute, you know, where is that? Is that line in the sand? And I, I think there's going to need to be some additional review and oversight and precedence set, on, sadly, in the court systems to, you know, to flesh that all out. But overall, for face value, how the law is written and, and its overall intent, I support it. Yeah, me too. Have you heard of any weird ransomware incidents, like people being locked in hotel rooms or cars? You know, as far <laughs> trying to be serious, I couldn't do it. Um, first off, not yet is the proper answer. I was going to say no. And I'm like, let's go with not yet. 
Not for ransomware specifically. I have heard some just zany off the wall, silly things, you know, taking control of um, automation and control systems uh, within hotels and locking people's doors, turning their lights on, putting the shades up in their room when they're trying to sleep. Things like, I have heard of those things. I have not heard of something as silly as that type of situation related to ransomware, but I know it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. I also worry that as we get more into the internet of things, the IOT based ransomware attacks, like in that realm, it really worries me. There was an article a while ago, and I don't even remember what it was. Ransomware coffee maker. Let's see if I can randomly find it while we're talking here. It was a proof of concept, really, uh, on YouTube. It's called What a Hacked Coffee Machine Looks Like. And it's a kind of an overview of, you know, hey, this internet connected box, like we can actually get our code to run on it. And for that matter, we could lock it down. You know, imagine an organization not being able to, to use their coffee maker, you know, one of those like nice Keurigs or even more expensive ones that's plumbed right into the water line that everyone relies on, you know, throughout the day, every day, five days a week or whatever. Having that held ransom, I mean, that's going to be hilarious the first time that becomes a real big thing. But you start to lose the humor of it when that becomes something like, you know, someone locked in a car for a period of time, ha, ha, ha. But those connected cars, especially when they're connected via LTE and some of them being exposed to the internet with services they should not be, you know, what's going to happen when people start poking at those? You know, you're going to start to hold people for ransom in their vehicles. It's going to get ugly at some point. You know, I'm not trying to be the... uh, looking at the negative, but I mean, it's going to happen if we don't acknowledge it and try to lock down those things sooner than later, then we're all doomed. So I'm sure you're going to hear some hilarious stories involving ransomware and, and what it's done, but not yet, not on my side, at least. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Would you want to tell us about maybe one or two really interesting cases that you investigated? Yes. I, so I can't speak to a lot of, um, well, not a lot, a number of the cases I've worked, especially directly, given, of course, the, the fun things with uh, non-disclosure agreements and things of that nature, which, again, goes back to the whole many orgs don't want to report you know, things. Um, overall, incident-wise, uh, outside of just ransomware, but just going into like you know threats that we deal with in, in digital forensics and incident response and defer land, I think uh, one of the things that was more interesting to me it was back in uh, 2016 through 2017, there were a couple groups that were based in Iran, and they, are, they were categorized then and now as advanced persistent threats. One of them was, is now known as APT-33, and another one is known as APT-34. These particular groups during that time frame were engaged in operations that many of them were highly targeted, by the way, um, and they were hitting aviation, energy, and um, the other uh, petrochemical type of things. You can even just Google APT33 uh, chemical or something like that, and you'll find you know a number of hits on this type of activity. They were targeting for you know a while, they were targeting this, this known exchange vulnerability where many organizations out there, they may have had multi-factor authentication enabled within their exchange, especially their um, their Outlook Online Office 365, for example, tenant, right? But what they didn't have is they did not have legacy protocols disabled. And uh, also just Outlook Web Access, OWA, misconfigurations in those 
were allowing for a tenant that otherwise was expected to be multifactored to not be multifactored. And then in those cases, if you have credential exposure, especially due to something as simple as phishing, you would have a big problem. Well, what these groups were doing wasn't just phishing for credentials, but rather they started, this is the first time I saw this mechanism or method being used. I was probably late to the party. Everyone I've asked about this in my realm has said like, no, that's, that's when I noticed it was a really big thing. You know, we didn't see it a lot before that. I'm sure there's some threat researchers out there who are like, no, <laughs> like we saw it before that. I didn't. In 2016, these Iranian groups were leveraging the fact that you would have these exposed OA services that were only single factor at the time, right? When the organizations thought that was not a thing. And they started using a methodology known as password spraying. So password spraying is kind of a subset of brute forcing, if you will. A brute force attack is when you typically think of a brute force attack, you think that you're trying to attack using brute strength. And when that comes to password-based attacks, trying to authenticate to an account, for example, usually you think of an account against which you throw tens, hundreds, thousands, millions, whatever, of passwords until one works, right? And then you've brute forced that password. Like, oh, look, you know, I went through 70,000 passwords from this password file that I have, you know, shout out to rockyou.txt, which many pen testers and red teamers are familiar with and, and always will be going forward. But an alternative to that is as opposed to taking one account and shoving a bunch of credentials against it, Password spraying is when I take one password and I spray it, hence the term, it's cute and also a little weird, against an, an organization's user base. So there was a tool that was known as SensePost Ruler. And you can just look up exchange ruler abuse tool or something like that, but it was made by SensePost, like the word sense, S-E-N-S-E-P-O-S-T, one word. And what Ruler would allow you to do is if you had Exchange with Auto Discover enabled where it should not have been enabled, it allowed the ability to, and technically still does for some really poorly configured older you know, environments, to get a dump of the global address list, what we call the gallery sometimes, or just the gal. The global address list means I could go into an organization, well, not go in, I'm not going anywhere, but the tool can run against an organization's tenant and pull down a list of all the mailboxes. Once you have a list of all the mailboxes, you then take a certain password or a small subset of passwords and you attempt it against every one of those usernames. So specifically what these Iranian groups were doing, they were using passwords that were a combination of the month and or the season, like summer, winter, whatever, and the year. So they would, for example, try January 2016, or they would try winter 2016. And they would also do slight deviations like an exclamation point at the end or something like that. They then started using the same concept by putting the year first, 2016, January, and then exclamation point, or maybe the number one. But that January through December with a year with or without the exclamation point, it turns out that was a password being used by a gratuitous number of accounts, user accounts around the world. I had no idea until 2016. And the reason I knew is because all of a sudden I was working cases, you know, helping out here and there where we had 
organizations where this tool, SensePost's ruler, and there are other tools, by the way, it's just the one I remember the most, was being used to, quote unquote, defeat their MFA system and to eventually succeed in breaking into accounts. Now, in reality, they weren't really bypassing MFA. What they were doing was using a service that was being exposed that didn't have MFA enabled, right? That, that's really what they were doing. Like the system shouldn't have had Mappy, you know, enabled. Like why was why was Mappy enabled? Um, why was RPC enabled? You know, what's going on with that? But furthermore, they were then able to leverage a feature, um, two of them specifically, but a feature in Exchange, more specifically Outlook, I should say, that allows you to have a rule. There's two different types of rules. One of them would execute a program. So you could have a process technically, you could have back then, not anymore. You could go into Outlook, for example, and say, I want to, I want to make a new rule. You know, when an email comes in and it has this subject or it has this, you know, whatever, I want to run a program. And they found a way to make that run a program be set to a remote program. And that remote program would then be downloaded via web dev. It's an extension to HTTP and it's kind of like SMB server message blocking or what, you know, um, Windows in general uses for file sharing and uh, things of that nature. PS exec and tools that move laterally around the environment, they use SMB. File shares use SMB or SIFs in a Windows environment. It's kind of like that, but over HTTP. So in other words, these threat actors, right, were going to organizations where they couldn't log into accounts normally because they had MFA enabled. You know, they couldn't just go to their O365, which now is officially called Microsoft 365. And they couldn't just say, hey, check it out. Uh, here's the username, here's the password, go. Right, it, that would fail. But they use these tools and mechanisms to identify, was Mappy enabled, was RPC enabled? And if it was, can we get a list of all the accounts? And if we can get a list of all those accounts, okay, great, let's go ahead and spray passwords against them. And let's just use this single factor feature service that's exposed that they probably don't even know about. If that was successful, they would then say, okay, well, I'm going to use this tool like Ruler or one of the others, and I'm going to add a rule to the account that whenever an email comes in with, you know, whatever they would configure, sometimes it would be like any email, right? Or it would be an email with a specific subject. And then they would send that email inbound to that user. It would trigger the malware download. And then their Outlook client would run the damn malware. <laughs> it was like, that's not good. So there, there are a bunch of vulnerabilities, if you will, that were all chained together. And by utilizing this methodology, the Iranian APT 33 and 34 threat actors were able to gain access to a number of environments. And working those cases, it was very interesting because it, it, it's like that, that small thing that we realized in the InfoSec community at one point at, in one year, where all of a sudden you realize, what in the heck? This is a huge problem. This is a big damn problem. Looking at those passwords, the passwords where I'm talking about, by the way, forget ruler, forget exposed, single, actually don't forget those. If you're in charge <laughs> of your exchange environment, on-premises or not, make damn sure you have legacy protocols disabled. If you need them, why do you need them? I don't think you do need them. And if you feel you need them, it's for some old third-party software or it's something that you create in-house, fix that problem or use a conditional access policy to only allow specific accounts 
and enterprise applications to use legacy authentication. Otherwise, disable the damn thing. It's still a huge problem. But that's not even what I was talking about. What I'm really talking about are those damn passwords. You know, March 2017 exclamation point. What year is this right now? It's 2022. It's July as we're recording this. July 2022 exclamation point. Think about what we've trained the IT industry for years, for years. Your password has to be at least how long? It was forever. It was at least eight characters, which by the way, sucks. Okay. But uh, July, 2022. Yeah, that's more than eight characters. All right. So it's nine. Actually, you have to have at least one capital letter. July is capital. You have to have at least one number. There's four digits with two unique numbers. You have to have a, a special character. Well, that's where the exclamation point comes into play. These passwords were used heavily for obvious reasons. People don't like to rotate their passwords, right? So they try to choose something that's easy to remember. Oh, the month and the year, exclamation point. Yay me, right? Or it became a situation uh, on the other side, I should say. It became a situation because you can have a password policy within your organization, but it may be very difficult, including in your typical Active Directory-based network environment, to restrict passwords from having certain key phrases or strings within them. So there's a filter, passfilt, P-A-S-S-F-I-L-T dot D-L-L. It's a DLL that's part of Active Directory, right, provided by Microsoft. And it is a dynamic link li library that provides the ability to filter out what passwords can or cannot be used within your organization, okay? It is extremely freaking limited. You're able to say, you can't use this, you can't use that. You are not able to say things without extensive configuration or third-party mechanisms that say, you cannot have a month as part of your password, you cannot have this particular name as part of your password, you cannot have this as part of your password. So you have to go to these third-party methods and tools, and Microsoft has addressed that over the years. But at the time, there was no way to stop your users from doing it. So then we had to come up with really creative things to remediate potential problems, right, for prevention. And that would be stuff like you go into Active Directory, you take all your user password hashes. You don't have to look at them in plain text, but you hash January through December with the current year and the next year, exclamation point, or previous year or two. You check those hashes against what you have in Active Directory. If anything matches, damn it, that user is using one of those don't use me passwords. So now you have to deal with that. So I'll digress there, but that case was, those cases that I worked at, there's one big one for like five weeks that sucked during that time frame was big for me because it was such a simple thing. A password, a type of password, a format, a schema that many, many, many people around the world were using and we really weren't cognizant of that. Until when? Until a bunch of Iranian threat actors showed us, hey, stupid, <laughs> sucks for you. And from there, we, we didn't have to learn our, our lesson. That's super interesting. What has helped you be successful in information security? I think the biggest thing that has really helped out started back in the AOL scene, and it was being open to learning from others and learning to seek others to learn from them. You know, we didn't start our AOL scene days, jump into a room all of a sudden and know exactly what we're doing, right? We watched what others did. We watched their scrollers go by. We watched them talk about different progs. We 
watched them talk about, you know, fake account generators. And then we started, hey, can I can I get one of those little guys and you know take a look at it? And then we asked questions about it, like, well, how, how come how's this work? And that type of thing. I've maintained that throughout my entire career. My big thing is networking, doing exactly what we're doing right now, Steve. Like me and you right now, we're communicating, we're networking, we're putting out this podcast. Again, very happy to be here. Love running my mouth about, you know, cybersecurity. And that's, that's what you're letting me do right now. So freaking awesome. And finding people of uh, a similar interest, you know, this is a passion for me and it's a passion for many of the folks in the industry. And so finding those people and learning from them and also teaching them is awesome. I just love it. So going out of your way to do things like do presentations at conferences or to, you know, I help run a conference now. Why? Why do, why do I do that? I have enough jobs already, man. Well, because I know what it did for me and I know what it did for my career, but also just for me growing as a person, let alone, you know, in my specific field, I love learning from others. I love to see what other people are capable of doing. And you have to have humility and you have to be able to say, holy crap, that person, the way they do this freaking phenomenal, way better than what I would do. Or for that matter, you have to be able to say, I have no idea what the hell that person's talking about, but I'm going to learn it. And a lot of people are just kind of scared to do that, you know, and, and my first ransomware case that I had ever worked, I talk about ransomware a lot, obviously. I didn't know what the heck I was going to find. You know, I had ideas, but I really didn't know exactly what I was going to find. So going into that case and having the principal analyst alongside me who had already been working ransomware cases, you know, for these third parties, me moving into consulting was, was a new arena, if you will. He was like, hey, check it out. Here's how we parse their data. Here, here's an example of what you see in a lot of these ransomware attacks. And it was like, all right, feed it, feed it. I'm the baby bird, go, <laughs> like give it to me. And the more that you're open to doing that, the better. I actually got a call, not a call, um, a call, what am I talking about? I got hit up today, today on LinkedIn by a young man basically saying, hey, I put in for some internships with your company. And I'm wondering if you could put in a good word for me. And I'm like, first off, who the hell are you? <laughs> right? Like, wait, wait, what? But after communicating with him for a little bit, it didn't take long for me to realize this person is a freaking go-getter. He does exactly what I tell people to always do. Reach out, make the effort, connect with people and let them know I'm interested and I want to learn. And that is what's helped me be so successful. A big part of that networking was doing presentations, you know, even when I was newer to the digital forensics field, within a year, I was putting in a call for paper submission, which we call it a CFP. If you want to present at a conference, for example, I want to run my mouth on stage, right? You put in an entry as you submit a call for papers entry and you say, hey, you have an open call for papers. I'd like to talk about the following, right? Here's my topic. Here's my abstract. If you're really good at doing them and you want to be accepted, here's my partial or even complete outline, by the way. And when I did my first submission, I got accepted and I kind of shit myself because I didn't know what I was talking about. Like <laughs> I basically said, hey, I want to talk about these things. And then it occurred to me, shit, I know like 60% of what I just offered to do and it got accepted. And from that point, the crunch and learning and putting together that presentation and then being able to present it as, as a source of authority on it 
You don't say shit like, hey, two weeks ago I learned. <laughs> you know, you just skip that part. Rather, it's more like, hey, check it out. This is how this works. And when you go to other talks by other people or when you read their research, their papers, hell, their tweets. These days, everything's on Twitter. You read their tweets about, hey, I pulled this apart and here's what I found, right? It's, it's all about the human element and that recognizing that and striving to be a part of that. It goes, it goes back to community, right? Accepting and, and being part of the community, which full circle goes right back to the whole, we're talking together right now because of the AOL scene, right? Uh, and that's, that's where it really kind of continues as you foster a community, you become part of it and you continue forward. Got it. Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners? I'd love to share everything with the listeners and just keep talking and right in my mouth and talk more about ResEdit and the fun we used to have back in the Mac scene and you know whatever. Talk about different cases I've worked with in general. May not be uh, large tantalizing cases you've heard of in the news, but many of those very similar types of cases I, I've got to work. You know, uh, various ransomware crews have been doing with them a lot recently, the way they do their thing. Oh, it's phenomenal. But I'm going to digress because we've been going a while here. So I would like to share that speaking of community, we have a community that is part of the conference that I help put together. The conference is called Cactus Con. So like cactus, like, you know, you're in the desert and he's a big old cactus and you go, damn, that's cactus. Cactus, (laughs) I guess. Cactus Con dot com or just you know youtube.com slash cactuscon or twitter.com slash cactuscon or just look up the damn word cactuscon we however have a discord server and it's actually called the cactuscon community and its design and intent was just that to foster a year-round community where folks can go and learn more about information security i'm going to click on it right now while i'm talking to you we have a number of channels in here. One of them, for example, being free training resources. So we have a number of, uh, it's just called free-training, technically is the channel name. And even myself, I've dumped, I don't know how many damn links in here to free training resources for all different types of cybersecurity fun things, right? I'm big on the blue team, cyber defense, but folks have been sharing you know, all kinds of things about red teaming, meaning like actively attacking, resources on just learning about like what's a vulnerability and how are they exploited, all these various things. If any of you from back in the old scene are like, I kind of want to get into uh, to cybersecurity, right? Or InfoSec, whatever we want to call it. And I want to do defense or I want to do uh, attacker simulation, whatever the hell, like pop over to our Discord and check us out. We've got a bunch of fun stuff in there and I'd just love to hear from you there. For that matter, hell, ping me in the re-AOL Discord. I'm in there, right? RJ underscore chap is my my Discord name that I use. So you'll see me in there. Um, Come say hi. Come check us out at CactusCon if you'd like to come physically in person, even better, right? But our 11th event, CactusCon 11, is going to be in January on January 27th and 28th. That's Friday and Saturday. It's going to be held at the Mesa Convention Center in Mesa, Arizona in the United States. But it's also going to be virtual. So we're doing another hybrid event. We had to adapt to a virtual event for, obviously, for COVID reasons. After which, this year, we stuck with a, a, we actually not stuck with, we adapted to, yet again, a hybrid approach where we did a virtual conference alongside a physical conference. And we're going to continue with that going forward. So if you want to check out our talks, check us out at cactuscon.com slash YouTube. Or just go to YouTube and, and look up cactuscon. In previous years, prior to when I jumped into the mix as the the lead, 
um, we didn't record our videos, or at the very least, we didn't put them online. And that was a, a decision that was made, you know, by design. That changed for CactusCon 9 and 10. So we now have a number of videos for two different years of CactusCon. So check those out. You know, it's all free training, free resources. You know, let me know what you think about it. If anyone listening is interested in possibly sponsoring the conference, then I'd be the person to, to talk to. So I have transitioned away from the lead project manager, if you will, right, of the whole shebang, because gosh, I have too much work. And I've moved to the liaison in general or slash the sponsor liaison. So if you want to talk to me about the conference at all, like hit me up. If you'd like to talk about sponsoring, volunteering, whatever, you know, you were like, hey, what, what do I have to do to get a talk accepted? Or, you know, I like these things. How could that apply to a talk? Like hit me up, just, just ping me. You know, I, I'm very busy. I work way too much. I may not be able to uh, reply right away, but I will. So check us out at CactusCon. Come see us do our thing and be part of our thing. Oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> Come see us do our thing and be part of our thing. And also, if you're interested in learning more about ransomware, I have a SANS course out now. It's not cheap, quote unquote. You would most likely have to have your employer flip the bill for the course, but it is SANS Forensics 528. And you can read more about it by just going to for528.com slash course. And that will redirect you to a, an hour long video of me talking about how great the course is. And yes, you can listen to me run my mouth even more because <laughs> I love to do it. So those are the things I wanted to share. You know, a big thing that's a part of me and, and my life outside of just my day job are CactusCon and my SANS training and content. So definitely, definitely check that out. And then finally, if you're interested at all in you know, seeing any of the other stuff that I've, I've put out there, all the free stuff I put out there, right? It's uh, incidentresponse.training is the website. So there's, uh, I don't know, I got a bunch of presentations and podcasts and workshop materials and all of the kind of crap on there. So check that out. If you have any questions on any of the material, you're having any issues getting through it, want to find more stuff like it, whatever, just hit me up. The Discord for CactusCon or re-AOL is the easiest way to do it, but however you can, go for it. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? Yes, I do. Parting words of wisdom. The number one thing that I try to tell people that has, has made me successful, quote unquote, whether some people see me or people like me as a success or not, right? <laughs> I, could, I do. I like to think of it is do what you love. Find a way to do what you love for a living. And I, I've heard many, many people say that, but I don't see as many people doing it as I wish that I did. And for me, digital forensics and incident response, it just fits. It's just phenomenal. It's perfect. I freaking, I fucking love it. Every day I go to work, I may have that tinge of, ah, crap, I have this client call and their report's not done yet. I may have these little whiny episodes with my wife, but there's too much damn work, whatever. But when it really comes down to it, I love this shit. And when you love what you do, it makes everything else in your life just click into place that much more. You know, for any of you out there who are like, you know what, I'm working at so-and-so and I hate this shit, right? If that If that's your take on what you do, change it. Do what, whatever you can to change it, even if it's something as small as finally realizing a dream, <laughs> right, of learning, learning something new, a new technology, a new instrument. I don't care what the hell it is, right? We all in the AOL scene, we had a passion. 
we weren't there by force. We were there because we wanted to be. And that is what drove us. And that is what fueled our passion. And you should be able to have that enthusiasm in your everyday life. And when, if you don't have it now, if you find it, you'll be like, holy shit, this is awesome. And it's one of the things that I'm just always very, very proud of. I have a loving, awesome family. I may work too damn much, but even they know that I, I love my job. And it makes it, ex- I was going to say acceptable. It makes it acceptable that I have to work. <laughs> Working sucks. It makes it just that much easier. You know, I can kind of float through some of the things. I'm like, man, I'm having fun. You know, if I have a, a threat actor who's in an environment, you know, they're causing some fraud issues or it's like a, a mage cart style of like, you know, carting. Remember the old carting stuff that <clears throat> some people used to do in the scene? I used to be amazed at how people had the balls to just send packages to empty houses and go pick it up with stolen credit cards. Like, that's so stupid. Those people have evolved into some of the cases I work, <laughs> some of the fraud cases that I work on, on a much grander scale, you know, stealing products from, you know, companies like a, like an Amazon, if you will, but in a much smaller organization than Amazon, those types of things, you know, just, it's really, really fun to look through and parse all that data. If you can't say the same thing about your job, then like, can you fix it? And if you can, then by all means, oh, freaking do it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Steve, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I know that we went well beyond what we originally thought we were going to do. And uh, hopefully I've maybe um, gotten some folks a little passionate about learning some digital forensic stuff, you know, maybe pop over to our CactusCon Discord or even just check out the re-AOL project. You know, if you're like, wait, you can log into an AOL 3 client in 2022? Yeah, that's how I met the podcast host Steve right here who I'm talking to. <laughs> like, go, go check that out. So. Very, very happy to have been here. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to listen to future episodes to see what other stories the fellow post-scene adults, we're all adults now, and that ridiculous, uh, have to share. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Hack the planet. Hack the planet. Welcome to cyberspace.